Two and a Half Admins, episode 133. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And your customary Clara plug is the webinar, Deploying a Successful Performance Audit. This is the video on demand version. Yes. So if you missed our live webinar last week, the video for it is now up and you can watch it at your leisure. Right. Well, link in the show notes as usual. We stand to save $7 million over five years from our cloud exit, says David Hansen who is the CTO of 37signals, which is uh, the company behind Basecamp. This is the latest in a series of posts about this, about migrating away from the cloud. And uh, shock horror, moving to your own servers is way cheaper than having it all managed for you in the cloud. Well, and the cloud wasn't really managing it for you in this case. Basically, the, the elasticity you get from the cloud comes at a cost. And that's very valuable when you need that el- elasticity. But if you have some base load that you're never going to be able to turn off, paying the higher hourly rate for it in Amazon is going to be more expensive than doing it on your own hardware. And let's be honest, the vast majority of Amazon's customers are not doing elastic scaling. Mm-hmm. They are just setting up their crap on AWS and saying, look, our crap works and calling it a day. And if that's what you're doing, that is not a particularly cost-effective way to do it. Yeah. And they say, you know, since declaring their intention to leave the cloud, they've been busy trying to make it happen. They're set on getting a total exit from the cloud by the end of the summer. And based on their calculations, they think they'll save about $7 million in server expenses over the five years without having to scale up their ops team. That was the really interesting part. I was waiting to see if you're going to hit that note without changing the size of our ops team. That's the part that really makes that interesting. What that really points to here is that the cloud was not doing the cloud's job when it came to 37 signals. Part of the raison d'etre of the cloud is supposed to be that you get to abstract stuff away and that makes things easier for you. But when you're running a complex service, really not just one complex service, when you're doing everything that you need to do to be providing a web application along the lines of Basecamp, odds are pretty good at that point that you're going to have to have spun up enough of your own tooling that the difference between managing your own hardware versus managing all of the same things on a piece of hardware that somebody else can push the power button on, it just, it doesn't really amount to much. Yeah, and then looking at it, they figured in total in 2022, they spent $3.2 million on the cloud, about a million of that on storing eight petabytes of files in Amazon S3, and the other 2.3 million on app servers, cache servers, database servers, search servers, and all that stuff. Currently, they've put off dealing with the eight petabytes of stuff in S3 to 2024, because it's going to take a while <laughs> to copy that much data and to, to build something to, to host it and so on. They say they're almost ready to place their monster order with Dell. Sounds like they'll buy about $600,000 worth of hardware, which will last five years versus they're spending multiple times that every year in the cloud. At least five years is the key, right? Because they're budgeting for five years, but sometimes that hardware can last longer than that. Right. When you're putting together a hardware lifecycle for a company, for any kind of commercial service, you want to budget for a couple of years less than you think you can actually get out of the hardware. Five years is a great budget to have for server hardware, understanding that the odds are quite good that you get to the end of your five-year budget period and you review your hardware and you go, you know what? We're good for another couple of years. Uh, It's been reliable. We're not seeing any issues with hardware reliability. We're still getting the performance that we need. There's nothing so compelling that we want to go through the hassle of the hardware spend and then the migration of all our stuff onto the new hardware. 
we'll push it down the road for another couple of years. And in fact, like when, when I'm doing hardware lifecycle calculations for my own clients, that's usually the way it works. And we usually push past the first theoretical lifecycle end that we budgeted on, and we'll frequently kick the can down the road another year or two again after that, and maybe get 10 years out of servers. But the point is, you do the budget for the five-year, because you may need to replace it for five years, whether it's due to growth, reliability issues with the hardware, and it really should be replaced, whatever. And you need to be financially prepared for that. So budget for five, when you're thinking in the back of your head, this will probably take me seven, that's the way to do it. Yeah, and especially after five years, as fast as the Zen 4 chips are, imagine what the chips in five years will look like. When you're talking about something at this scale, just the fact that there's newer, faster hardware isn't necessarily what's really going to drive your decision. Do I upgrade or not? There is the question, do I need the extra speed that the newer, faster hardware has? And then beyond that, maybe you don't have any performance issues, but maybe it is still worth replacing your current hardware with newer hardware because you are running the show and you pay the power bill and maybe that newer hardware, you can get the same workload done in fewer machines with fewer kilowatt hours expended. And that becomes worth pulling the trigger on a hardware replacement earlier. Yeah. Like in particular, they're talking about having about 2000 CPU cores uh, per data center for a total of 4,000. If five years from now, it means they can do twice as many CPUs in half the amount of rack space and half the amount of power or whatever, then that might make sense for them. Or it might be we're going to continue to use the same number of machines and stuff and, and have, you know, eight times the usable cores in the end, whatever makes sense for them. But yeah, they say spending $600,000 on a bunch of hardware might sound like a lot in the age of the cloud, but if you amortize that out over the five years, it's just $120,000 per year, which compared to the $2.3 million we're spending on Amazon, that looks pretty cheap. $3.2 million in 2022. Yeah, but uh, some of that was for storage. Sure. Yeah, big chunk of it was for storage. And that seems like that's kind of phase two. And uh, they don't need to be spending that much for that amount of data, right? Well, you, you don't need to pay per month for it necessarily. Like if you build something and do have the little bit of ops people you need to replace some hard drives when that happens or whatever, you can totally do that for a number with fewer commas in it. Yeah, fewer commas, fewer zeros. I kind of chuckled when I got to that line, spending 600000 on a bunch of hardware might sound like a lot in the age of cloud. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> we are in the age of cloud. And I know how much that crap costs. Six hundred grand sounds like a bargain. Yeah, well, it also sounds like, hmm, if I could take $120,000 a year worth of hardware and sell it for $3 million in the cloud, why am I not doing that yet? Because <laughs> Bezos got there first, man. <laughs> right. But uh, and, and right to Jim's point earlier, the comment at the end here, and we have a lot of boxes still running fine after seven years. Mm -hmm. So again, they know they can get seven years out of the boxes, but they budget for five so that they don't end up being like, oh, we have to do it before we budget it. And I say, of course, that's just the boxes. We'll have to do power and bandwidth and so on. But they say they're currently spending $60,000 a month on eight dedicated racks between those two data centers. We purposely over-provisioned our space so we can fit as many new servers and existing racks without needing more power and space and so on. And so in total, that's only $720,000 a year for the space and power and bandwidth. And so that brings the entire thing up to $840,000 a year compared to $2.3 million in the cloud. And we're getting faster hardware, more cores, NVMe storage, rather than cloud-based network storage that maybe it's backed by NVMe, but it's slowed down by the fact that it's over the network and so on. 
and we have room to expand at very low cost, we can still fit four more racks in each data center. In round numbers, let's just call it saving a million and a half dollars a year times five years is $7 million that we're not spending to someone else's business. The thing that blows my mind is that this genuinely is a surprise to so many people. And I know it is because I talk to people every day about cloud versus on-prem, you know, hybrid, the whole nine. And so many people are just like, oh, well, you know, you put it on AWS because that's where you put it. And, you know, we're saving money. I've heard so many people say, we're saving so much money by putting everything in the cloud. And they They've never done the actual math. They've just bought that party line. And it blows my mind that people swallow that. Because you know, like like Alan said, you know, towards the beginning of this, you know, elasticity is where the cloud can save you money. If you need a thousand machines, but you only need them for a couple of days, yeah, the cloud can absolutely save you a bunch of money. But when you've got a relatively stable fleet of hardware that you need in order to provide your service, how is it a surprise that cutting out a middleman saves you money? Owning costs less than renting. It, this isn't even something that's unique to computing. It's just kind of how the world works. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com 25A. GoDaddy says a multi-year breach hijacked customer websites and accounts. And you might have been one of them at it. I think so, based on some of what they're saying here. So yeah, GoDaddy, which has about $4 billion a year in revenue from its hosting and domain business, says that uh, the company had three uh, serious security incidents starting in 2020 and lasting through 2022 that were all carried out by the same intruder. And they say, based on our investigation, we believe these incidents are part of a multi-year campaign by a sophisticated threat actor group that, among other things, installed malware on our systems and obtained pieces of code related to some services within GoDaddy. Now, the thing that I found interesting about this is it's relatively low-hanging fruit to say, okay, well, we owned GoDaddy, so now we can own all of GoDaddy's customers and run malware on those customer sites. But that's not what this threat group did. And if there's any one thing that tends to convince me Yes, this really was a sophisticated group. It's the way that they pulled off this attack. Rather than just running malware code directly on all of GoDaddy's customer stuff, they compromised GoDaddy's server farm and set it up so that everybody's websites would randomly every once in a while get redirected to the uh, you know, the malware and the spam and the and the crap and the nonsense. I'm sure there were plenty of dick pill ads on offer as well. But the point is, no one person's site was always obviously compromised. They took a cut. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like a protection racket. You know, they came in and they're like, eh, you know what? We're going to take a certain percentage of your page views. 
all of your customers' page views, and we're going to reroute them to our own crap that, you know, then we have monetized and we'll make money off of, which the aforementioned malware and spam and probably dick pills and what have you. In particular, that would let them get around things like Google safe browsing and so on that were going to blacklist a site if Google went there and saw malware. But because they were just fleecing like this tiny fraction of the traffic and not consistently, it meant that Google would check, and oh, that website's fine, and then send you there. And then if you got unlucky, you, you hit the, the redirect. And you figure when you're starting off with $4 billion a year worth of revenue in sites, that's a lot of traffic to be able to just say, yeah, I'm going to take a cut of that. <laughs> I don't need the whole thing. Just, just, just give me a taste. That's probably a pretty large, rich, and complex taste to savor. Well, in particular, uh, starting in September of 2021, they got access to the login credentials for WordPress admin accounts, FTP accounts, and email addresses for 1.2 million current and inactive managed WordPress customers. And later in November of that year, they managed to actually get access to GoDaddy source code for their managed WordPress service, meaning they could make a change there and it would apply to every WordPress install. And like I said, just a tiny fraction of that traffic would go somewhere weird. They also say, over the years, other security lapses and vulnerabilities have led to a series of suspicious events involving massive numbers of sites. Back in 2019, for instance, a misconfigured domain name service at GoDaddy allowed attackers to hijack dozens of websites owned by Expedia, Yelp, Mozilla, and others. And that's the case that I got hit by one time, is somehow without compromising my account, somebody at GoDaddy managed to change the name servers for my domain to the GoDaddy ones, and then serve redirects instead of my name servers. And so my whole domain just stopped working. The subdomains that all my stuff expected just stopped resolving. You know, say we have 10 DNS servers. We make sure that our DNS is going to stay up, but it doesn't work if the root domain now all thinks they should be coming from other place that doesn't have our zone. I've seen that happen with a few GoDaddy domains where you, know, you set up your own private DNS and all of a sudden one day, hey, it's back to the GoDaddy servers for no apparent reason. And nobody from support can explain why that happened. And they'll just be like, oh, well, you know, you must have done it or somebody else has your password that you didn't think about or blah, blah. And it's like, no. It's like, yeah, but I can see that the last time I logged in was months ago when it was me. And so, no, it wasn't via logging in. Exactly. Yeah. And it caused quite a disruption. And obviously, the GoDaddy name servers are returning long TTLs, not the short TTLs I was. And it took... A while by time all the public resolvers actually saw the name servers back to what they should have been. It was uh, quite an afternoon. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases that can literally just be, it's not an attacker, it's just a bug at GoDaddy because that's their default configuration. It's what the vast majority of their customers are doing. They're using GoDaddy's own name servers. So it makes it relatively easy for somebody to do something dumb that they think is fine because, well, that's what everybody's doing and, you know, then it nails you. Right, but at the same time, when you see that, oh, the stuff hosted at GoDaddy is causing these redirects, you can see how... Don't get me wrong, this is not me defending GoDaddy. No, I just say, <laughs> just because it could have been GoDaddy's incompetence, the reason why my name servers got reset doesn't mean it wasn't somebody doing it. Right, right. I think the big thing that we need to come back to here is to point out, again, that just consolidating everybody's stuff all into one service in one place is frequently not a security win. The sales pitch, again, is always that we've got better people that are sharper administrators and we've got more resources and we do everything the right way, but very few companies actually do everything the right way. Even when they start out, it tends to slide because one of the easiest ways to 
cut costs is, you know, you start getting rid of some of those pesky security people or their practices, or you start paying attention to the expensive things they ask you to do and everything just kind of keeps sliding downhill. And then you're just left with, okay, now I'm on a not particularly secure implementation of the thing that I want to do. And my stuff is in one basket with millions of other people's, which makes it incredibly attractive for an attacker to come along and say, hey, I'm going to own that whole basket and you're part of that basket. So when that basket gets owned, so do you. Whereas if you had set up your own services, even if you didn't do a perfect job security-wise, a lot of the time you're going to be in less danger of an attack if you do a reasonably competent job because you're not in this basket with a million other more valuable targets. You're sitting over there on your own and somebody who attacks you is attacking you for just what you have. So in a lot of cases, that's really a much better security posture, as we're seeing with LastPass instead of something like KeePass that's self-managed, with setting up your website on GoDaddy versus, you know, setting it up yourself somewhere or using GoDaddy managed WordPress rather than setting up your own WordPress instance. All these are examples of putting your goodies in one basket with everybody else's goodies. And then you can't be too surprised when somebody comes along and takes the basket. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Alan, you found quite a funny article on HowToGeek. PSA, you should be using a smart plug to restart your router. Yeah, it says power cycling your router or modem to fix connection issues is a hassle, but with an inexpensive smart plug, it doesn't have to be. (laughs) What could go wrong with this? Where's the hole in this logic? It doesn't have to be a hassle to automatically crash power. (laughs) to the device that runs your network every week on a schedule without you even paying attention to it when it happens. Yeah, that's nice and easy, all right? Jim pointed out offline exactly where this can go wrong. It's like, yeah, if your network's not working, how are you going to reach the smart plug that probably relies on the internet to work? And even if it is just Wi-Fi based, that probably comes from that same router, although it tends to be with those routers the problem that restarting and fixing is that the NAT state table is too full or something because they just don't have enough RAM or are badly configured. But really, if if you're in the situation where your router needs to be restarted regularly because otherwise your internet stops working... You need a different router because the one you have is a piece of crap. Yes. And for the price of a not crappy smart plug, you could have one that works instead. Well, I don't know about that. You can get some pretty cheap smart plugs that you can flash with open source firmware and stuff. So, you know, they're, they're only like five or 10 bucks, I think, for some of them. So that's it's not quite fair to say that it's the same price. But I am inclined to agree that if you are having to schedule a regular reboot, then yeah, maybe it's time to think about getting a new one. 
But okay, let's let's talk about the other things because if you're considering the smart plug nonsense to begin with, I certainly hope that you actually are having to power cycle your router constantly because it's screwing up if you're considering this. If you're not experiencing that, then definitely don't just start crashing the power to your router on a regular schedule just because, because that will make it have problems sooner or later. They are designed to be robust to losing power because the companies designing consumer routers know that they're going into an environment with no power control and absolutely no discipline or knowledge on the part of the users. So yeah, they tend to be built to survive that kind of thing. They have to be. But you're still talking about crashing a system repeatedly. It's a bad idea. So let's move on. Let's say that, yes, you you do, in fact, have this problem and you frequently have to power cycle your router because things stopped working and they start working again after power cycle. So now at this point, your choice is to spend, if you're lucky, only five or ten dollars because you know exactly the right smart plug to get, you know, like Joe, blah, blah, whatever. Or you get a router that isn't constantly crashing. And now I wouldn't recommend this to everybody, but if you're a 2.5 admins listener, odds are pretty good you can handle a Mikrotik HEX, which is like a $50 board that does an incredibly good job for just the little itty bitty bit of hardware it is. These things look like a joke. It, they come in a little tiny pasteboard box. They fit in the palm of your hand. And uh, they're so lightweight, it feels like if I threw this at Alan across the room, like he might not even bother to say ow when it hit him. With that said, despite how cheap these things are and feel and look, they came closer to doing wire rate on gigabit with really challenging routing workloads than any of the commercial routers that I put them up against. You can absolutely do better than that with, you know, like an x86 PFSense box or a, a really powerful multi-core ARM router. But uh, man, they get way closer to line rate than anything ought to be able to with the inexpensive hardware that's in them. 50 bucks. You can even do BGP with those things, which is just ridiculous. And you absolutely shouldn't. And that's the other reason I'll say I don't normally recommend Mikrotik routers to people because um, you, you do want to have a paperclip in your possession because if you start getting experimental in the user interface, you will very rapidly put that router in a condition where you cannot reach the web UI and you're going to have to paperclip reset it. It's perfectly stable once you get it set up the way that you want it to. And it's not hard to get a simple small office, home office type of routing environment where you've got NAT and DHCP and DNS, and that's all you're really doing. That's not hard to do and, and not have any issues. But when you start messing around with things like BGP, yeah, you'll break it pretty quick. But again, paperclip, reset it, set things up, and, and you're fine. But hang on, this article was not aimed at us or our listeners, was it? It was aimed at quote unquote normal people. So what advice are we to give the normal people who would read this and think, oh, that's a great idea. I have to reboot it all the time. And oh, it's a, a hassle to stand up on that shelf or go down to my basement to do it, whatever. I was already advising those normal people to go get a simple Eero 6 three-pack. Costs a little less than 200 bucks. It will solve all kinds of problems that they're having if they're using some kind of crappy little single node router that's dying all the time and has to be power cycled to begin with. I guarantee their Wi-Fi sucks and the Eero will fix that. And I don't think I've ever seen an Eero unit lock up in a way that required a power cycle and then it was fine after the power cycle. I, I don't think I've ever seen that happen. I need to check like the uptime on my Wi-Fi router because it's got to be seven years or something because <laughs> all it does is sit there and do Wi-Fi and it's plugged into the UPS and it's just never been off. 
and it shouldn't ever need to be. And yeah, if you're having to reset it that often, you replace it instead of spending at least half as much on some smart plugs to either do it from your phone on demand or like Jim was saying, worse, configure it like they recommended this article to do it at 3 a.m. every Sunday or something. It's like, yeah, but you're crashing a computer every single week. Eventually, that's going to make it unhappy. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in those questions. And like I always say, the shorter the better. Piper Day writes, Would you advise against running SMB and NFS shares from the same host for any particular reason? For what it's worth, the host in this case is an Ubuntu 2204 server. Generally speaking, no. Running SMB and NFS shares on the same host is fine. There are literally millions of NAS devices out there configured to do exactly that right out of the box. The one potential issue is if on the same machine, you've got SMB and NFS shares that both expose the same folder and files. You could, in theory, have a locking issue because SMB goes to lock a file and NFS doesn't know about it. Now, in practice, I don't expect that to be a big issue for many people very frequently. If for no other reason, then the file locking should go all the way down to the actual file system beneath SMB and NFS themselves. But it is possible if it's a really busy environment with a lot of concurrent users, you could eventually see a, you know, a concurrent file locking issue. But in general, like if this is just, if you've got four or five people that want access to a file server and some want to use SMB and some want to use NFS, that's fine. Yeah, like that's how my one at home is configured because my previous D machines will connect over NFS and do that, but the Windows machines want to do SMB. But I'm not going to be editing the same file on a Windows machine and a Unix machine at the same time, so I don't have anything to worry about. Okay, Christopher says, let's say I'm a good boy and I've created all my SSH keys with a strong password. Since they can't be used without the password, why not share the keys publicly? E.g. put both private and public keys in github.com slash my username slash SSH keys. Putting a challenge passphrase on your key is a form of two-factor authentication. And what you're essentially asking is, if we have two factors, why don't I just throw one factor away? Well, because you need two factors. That's why. Better than the way I was going to put it. So yes, I think that's correct. Is that if it's supposed to be you have this key and a, a passphrase, then if you give the key to everyone, then all it is is the passphrase and you might as well not have keys and just use a password. And don't do that either. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Stumpy says, 
I have two old N54L HP microservers with 8GB of memory and an old AMD Turion 2 Neo processor. I've been using Unraid in the past, but would really like to migrate my setup over to ZFS. I would like to use these two boxes strictly for backups in two separate locations, so that they can backup data from the newer server I have. The only other thing I think I would run is perhaps a tailscale docker. Is this realistic? P.S. I'm sure it would be better to buy newer hardware, but I'm quite strapped for cash and just don't have the extra funds to get additional hardware. So I have the option of using what I have laying around or nothing. Sad face. Short answer is they'll be fine. For those who don't remember them, the uh, Turion 2 Neo, those were uh, laptop class processors, 15 watt TDP. They were dual thread. I don't think they were proper dual core because when you look at their uh, pass mark results, they actually have slightly higher single-threaded results than dual-threaded, which is typically an indicator that all this CPU really has is one core with SMT, symmetric multi-threading. Mm. But I mean, with that said, again, that's that's fine. They'll work fine. ZFS is really not particularly CPU-hungry. It has a reputation for that. People think that uh, checksumming every block is going to be just you know a nightmarish load on the processor, and it just isn't. Your AMD Turion 2s aren't much more powerful than the AMD Cabinis that I ran a, a small barbershop on, actually ran Windows virtual machines on Linux installed on ZFS on a machine with a little $50 Cabini APU. And they're not much less powerful than that. And you're not even talking about running VMs. You're just going to run ZFS by itself. It'll be fine. Will you lose a little bit of top-end performance if you have really fast SSDs in there because your CPU is wimpy? Yeah, a little. Will it add up to much of anything? No, and I mean, you already know that whatever you're putting in these machines, you're putting in a Turion too. So again, it'll be fine. It'll meet your expectations. Yeah, we're not talking about running an office full of 100 people accessing it at once here. We're talking about a single user server. It's not going to have amazing performance, but it will do the job, right? It already doesn't have amazing performance. It will continue to have the level of performance that it has now without ZFS is really what that comes down to. Because the idea that you need enormous amounts of CPU to run ZFS, it's a myth. Yes, completely bogus. And yeah, like you said, especially if they're going to be remote backups like that, it's more likely the bottleneck's going to be the internet connection rather than anything like that. And like Jim was saying, the checksumming, even a single core of this old Turion can still do gigabytes a second of that checksum, and the hard drives you can put in it aren't going to be able to do that much. So there's always going to be something that's slower than the checksums. And so in this case, these will work great. Having two backups is better than having no backups, even if they're old, cruddy machines. And if they're that old, they probably don't have much in the way of SSDs, like Jim was saying. So yeah, these will work perfectly fine. And if your new bigger server has ZFS, then you're using ZFS replication to do this over the Tailscale VPN or whatever, and it will save as much internet as it can by only replicating the blocks that actually matter. And normally, I might scold you a little bit for wanting to use 2011-era hardware just because of the power consumption. But these are laptop-class processors with a 15-watt TDP. So will they be as power-efficient as something modern that was built to be power-efficient? No. Will they be notably power-inefficient on any kind of a reasonable scale? No, absolutely not. They'll be fine. So if they're working well, you have my complete 100% blessings. Use that gear until you're done with it. Yeah. Do watch out for the hard drives getting too old, but it's a backup. So spend as much as it makes sense to spend on the hard drives. 
And the eight gigabytes of memory, that is totally fine. That's 100% fine for a server that is just doing, you know, ZFS and like file service. Absolutely not a problem. If you have to, you can actually get away with running like a desktop type VM on a machine with eight gigs of RAM and ZFS. Now at that point, you have to do some tuning and I'm not recommending it, but you can absolutely do it. I've done it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I run my NAS with four gigabytes of RAM and uh, I don't have any VMs on there, but it runs absolutely fine. Yeah. ZFS uses all this memory for a cache to make things faster. Means it works fine without it. It just isn't as fast as it could be with more. Yeah, and to be clear, now, if you get really memory starved, you do start to see more serious performance issues. If I run FIO benchmarking inside a VM that has only got a gig of RAM in it, I will get noticeably slower write results than in another VM on the same machine with 16 gigs of RAM allocated to it. As you really start to starve ZFS for RAM, you can have other impacts than just the size of the cache that, you know, you can you can read data from cache rather than having to go to the metal for it. But once you hit that, like, no, no, I've got eight gigs and really all I'm asking this machine to do is like run ZFS in a desktop. Nah, you're good. You do not have to feel bad about that. You're good. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. I am still on Twitter at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.